one of the main reasons why they felt the need to walk away from the crown and establish this new government is that the powers that be at the time were, quote, suspending their legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us. So kind of like when a governor says the legislature isn't needed, I'm just going to create new laws in these executive orders and have everyone in the state uh, enforce them for me. Hi, welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will, and today we're going to be talking about a highly controversial topic as of right now in our country. Uh, many of you guys know the coronavirus has put the entire nation at a standstill and a freeze, but especially here in the state of Michigan, it is causing a lot of interesting waves. And today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Catherine Henry. She is with Henry Law, and she is a, well, I don't know, I guess you study the Constitution quite a bit. So, uh, and obviously you're an attorney, so you know the law pretty well. You talk about it a lot. And this is, during this time, we've seen a lot of frustration with people. Uh, a lot of things are, a lot of people are confused on what is lawful, what is not lawful, what can we do, what can't we do. And as Christians, myself being a pastor and many of the audience here being Christians, they're very confused on how to go about things as well. So real quick, would you just mind telling us a little bit about yourself and all that good jazz? Yeah, so um, I am... Um well, I'm not good at uh, podcasts. I can start with that. Um, <laughs> so um, I am an attorney. Um, I am a Christian. But I can tell you that I did not grow up a practicing Christian. Um, I, I didn't really know what a lot of it meant. And I still don't know exactly. I'm, I'm very early in my faith walk. I would say I'm a Christian toddler, um, maybe a Christian kindergartner. Um, but I... Um, I am on that path, and I will graduate one day. But um, we I, all don't graduate for a long time, so you're fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I. I mean, my parents, I believe, are both Christians, but I just we. I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't grow up uh, studying Bible verses or knowing really who Jesus was or anything about what the gospels. You know, when people talk about the gospels, I'm like, what, what's that? What's the gospels? You know, any of those things. Um, and so I also grew up um, in a very liberal home, uh, liberal in the sense of, you know, conservative or liberal, and um, just totally, um, just totally the opposite of, I guess, the viewpoint I have now. In fact, um, I'm a very stubborn person. I'm very opinionated. Um, and uh, it does not sound like an attorney. No. <laughs> and it actually took. Um, being uh, being married to my husband and having some very interesting, uh, lively debates about a variety of things with religion and with um, politics that finally started to reveal to me things that I hadn't seen before. So um, I was I used to be very pro-life. Um, I was very well liberal in probably any sense of the word, um, and so. Um, I, yeah, I'm stubborn, so God used a lot of painful experiences in my life to make sure that I was put on the right track. Um, and so, uh, for example, I lost a baby in uh, 2012, and um, it's uh, still very emotional for me, but it was something that um, was the, 
catalyst to me um, becoming pro-life and understanding how important it is that I work to further um, our country in the right direction in, in terms of something like that. Um, anyway, so the things I'm talking about now, it's not something, you know, in terms of hearing the, you know, you, you've always been drinking the conservative Kool-Aid type of phrase. Uh, I was never given the conservative Kool-Aid. Um, so uh, this is something that I have had to um, get to a point in my life. I mean, I went all through school, all through college, all through law school as someone who was not conservative in the slightest and didn't understand it, and it was just a bunch of uh, rich, angry white guys who wanted to control my life. Um, that's what I always thought it was, um, at the Republican Party. Um, so anyway, not that I'm proud of the Republican Party, I'm gonna be honest. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of Americans um, who act like Americans, but at any rate, um, <laughs> That's kind of, a, you know, from where I was then to where I am now. And I, I, I thought I would always be a divorce attorney, quite frankly. I did a lot of, I've done many, many, many divorce cases. Um, and in recent years, um, I've put more emphasis on my work as a mediator, actually. Um, so I've done mediation, um, all kinds of dispute resolution, restorative justice. Um, I mediate in special ed cases and um, child protection cases and divorce cases and um, no fault insurance, I mean, you name it. Um, and I started doing that work actually before I got my law degree even. So um, I've been focusing on that. And, and then um, when I wound down my general practice attorney work, I uh, started focusing more on constitutional law cases. So, um, and then <laughs> this <laughs> happened. And I had felt kind of lost for a while about what exactly God wanted me to do. And I tell you what, I am super blessed to see that with um, all this COVID-19 stuff happening, that from the beginning of April forward, I have definitely had strong callings and specific instructions from God about the next step that I needed to do. So that's why I'm sitting here today, and that's why I have a ton of constitutional provisions and laws to talk to you about today. <laughs> yeah, so. it's, it's exciting. When you were like, yeah, I got a couple things, and you laid it all out, I'm like, whoa, we got a couple <laughs> things. And uh, I love that, though. And I think that's really great that I, I'm sorry to hear about the pain that you went through. Uh, my wife and I last year, we, we suffered two miscarriages. Brian's son was uh, our producer. Many of you guys know who he is. Uh, Brian's son was born at 25 weeks, and that's what changed him from pro-choice to pro-life um, because he was born at 25 weeks when they say it was a clump of and he's like, I held my son's crying hand. So it changed, uh, it was a huge perspective change for him. And then also just seeing like, of, of course, your journey as you study these truths. And it's amazing how God does put us in these journeys and how sometimes he uses so many weird things, painful things, hard-headed things. Like I'm a hard-headed person. You, I'm a very stubborn person. And God used so many things where he basically beat me over the head with a spiritual two by four and <laughs> got me to completely submit to him. And uh, as I've studied, of course, scripture and how everything relates to everything. And I just noticed that the Christian worldview really does walk on consistency and coherence and it makes everything click. So, and of course, that's one of the things that makes the constitution such a, an, a powerful document is the fact that many of those Christian truths are within its very 
uh, letters. So with that being said, I, I want to real quick, uh, if you don't mind, I want to read Romans 13 because this is what Christians have been running around with forever. So in Romans 13, many of you guys probably know this, people use, have been using this during the COVID-19 thing the entire time. And it's, it's kind of a, either Christians use it to slam other Christians to get them to shut up or other Christians bring it in as, an, uh, as a humble objection to possibly any sort of protest. And uh, so it, just real quick, and uh, Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to do good, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have to? Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath and on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God, but to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authority or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Bothers me, he says, to pay taxes. I wish he didn't, because then me not paying taxes would both be rebellious and spiritual. But it is not. So anyway, but pay to all that is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, mm. respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So this is used a lot, but there's a lot of other verses obviously in the Bible that hold tension to this that we need to take into consideration. But when people say the authorities and the law, there's, there's two things at play. Is it what the authorities have said or is it what the authorities have instituted before? Um, you know, because uh, certain orders are in contradiction to certain things. So now what do we do? So with that being said, Catherine, would you mind go ahead and shedding some light a little bit on uh, how, how to navigate this? Yeah, so um, the most important point to start with is that the authorities that are talked about there are not people. We're not supposed to, um, and I'm terrible in my you know, uh, Christian kindergarten walk that I'm on, to have a lot of the phrases or the, the, a lot of the verses off the top of my head, but we're not supposed to have any other idols, right? We're, we're only supposed to have um, God as our only idol. And so it's important that we're not um, idolizing or um, you know, blindly following any one particular person. Um, so we need to focus on the fact that we're talking about authority. Authority means the position. So the position here is um, that of governor. And, and I would say in our country, so I guess I should back up and say, we need to look at what, what does governing authority really mean? Every single country around the world has their own version of what governing authority looks like. They have their, their government, their system of government. Um, actually, it'd be very good time to mention that um, you can look at the Black's Law Dictionary um, and so a government is a structure of principles or rules determining how a state is regulated, an organization through which a body of people exercise political authority. So um, there, are, there are dictatorships, there are oligarchies, there are monarchs, um, monarchies. Um, there are peer democracies, which are direct participation by all the members of the society, not through elected representatives. And then, of course, there's a republic, um, which um, is a system of government in which the people hold sovereign power and elect representatives who exercise that power. 
So um, oligarchy, you know, rule by a few, monarchy rule by one. Um, and then on the far end of things, we have, um, very interesting, that a dictatorship is um, a, a person, a ruler, um, with absolute authority. Um, interestingly enough, and it'll come up in a minute, um, Roman law talked about an absolute ruler would be appointed in an emergency situation for a term of six months only, unless the other powers that be reappointed that person with those emergency powers for six months. Something to keep in mind considering the debate we're having here in Michigan. Um, so like I said, we here have a republic. Um, it's guaranteed in Article 4, Section 4 of our US Constitution. Um, but essentially what it boils down to is that um, our government derives its powers um, from the consent of the governed, which is stated right in our very Declaration of Independence. And no, that's not just a really old document that we think fondly of from time to time and might have studied in high school. That is the essence of what our government uh, is founded upon. It is a controlling document, whether you like it or not. Um, and it is the very document that starts off by saying um, that we are all created equal. We are all endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these very rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So, uh, and that's probably, you know, written before Black's Law Dictionary ever came out, I'm guessing. I don't know when Black's Law came around. <laughs> I'd but. assume. So, at any rate, we have um, authority is in the people. And the only way that government has the um, authority to act is if we have given them that authority through legal terms. So in other words, Black's Law Dictionary defines authority as the power to act, um, the authority to act legally on another's behalf, um, legally, okay? so. Um, how do you do that? Well, if you have a medical decision, you have a surgery coming up and you're afraid that you, you know, might be too out of it to be able to make any decisions um, that might come up in the course of that treatment, you might um, create a power, a medical power of attorney, a durable power of attorney for healthcare in Michigan is the other term, um, to list a particular person, your best friend Joe or something, to um, be able to make those decisions for you. He would have authority, legal authority, given that document, to make those decisions on your behalf or act on your behalf. Well, in our country, the um, main source of governmental authority is in our U.S. and Michigan constitutions. Um, so each state has their own constitution. So we in Michigan have our Michigan constitution. Um, and the... Um, the U.S. Constitution, of course, is the very document that um, came about many years ago, which again is uh, just as important today as it was back then. And um, so we do have some additional authority that's been given to uh, governing bodies or um, officers of the government uh, through statutes, laws that were passed. But that authority can never be exercised if it is 
actually restrained by the very language of the Constitution itself. So basically the Constitution serves as the guardrails. The Constitution, yeah, you can't, whatever you think you're going to do with a law, you can't do any, anything, uh, create any law, enforce any law that blatantly violates the Constitution. So um, what's interesting is that in, in this particular situation, um, the governor um, derives her authority, the governor of Michigan derives her authority from the enumerated powers in Article 5 of our state constitution. Um, someone asked me uh, um, during one of my recent uh, Facebook Live videos, well, what does that really mean, enumerated powers? It means specific limited powers they're, they're enumerated, they're laid out specifically, and if it's not in there, she can't do it. Hmm. So, um, also, um, something to note is that our Constitution expressly prohibits our governor from creating laws. So, Article 3, Section 2, uh, talks about the fact that we have a separation of powers, but our separation of powers doctrine in Michigan goes even beyond what a lot of other states spell out. And it says that no person exercising the powers of one branch of government can at the same time then um, exercise the powers of another branch of government. And that's for any of the three branches, right? So you can't have a district court judge who normally handles misdemeanor cases and landlord-tenant issues who is then somehow going to start exercising some quasi-legislative powers or um, a legislator who is going to try to somehow exercise executive powers of enforcing the laws. Um, that just can't happen. So likewise, a governor is in the executive branch and the governor has the powers of the executive branch but cannot exercise any legislative or judicial powers at all. So, um, and we've had some cases in Michigan Supreme Court that have kind of gone both ways on what that actually looks like and if it's really a total ban or if it's okay to give her some. Um, I think the language of the Constitution speaks for itself. There's literally no authority to go outside of the language of the Constitution and start inventing uh, new terms to explain away provisions in there. But that's kind of a whole other conversation. So <laughs> in our particular situation with COVID-19, um, so the Constitution does not prohibit her from, it, it does prohibit her from creating laws or modifying laws or you know, um, uh, basically repealing laws. Anything to do with the laws, the only thing she can do is enforce those, and that is her sole job. Um, so she certainly um, can't create laws through executive orders that cover more than one subject. Um, Article 4, Section 25, excuse me, Article 4, Section 24 of our state constitution says that no laws can be passed where there is a, um, it, it's talking about more than one subject. So, for example, an executive order that has, um, you know, a stay-at-home order that, that talks about the ability to sell cars or the ability to buy and sell homes or whether you can travel from one residence to another that you own or whether you can eat at restaurants or whether you can open your business or whether you can... Um, participate in governmental functions, you know, local city hall, you know, city council meetings, or, um, you know, the variety of topics that she's covered, 
are, there's many, I don't think anybody would argue that they're, they're singular topics, uh, executive orders, and um, each one of them talks about a variety of topics that, again, if she wants to say they have the force and effect of law, she needs to recognize that our Constitution, Article 4, Section 24, says you can't have one law that covers more than one subject. So you can't have one executive order that covers more than one subject. Um, <laughs> Interesting is that she actually threw that in the face of the legislators when they try to get her to sign on to Senate Bill 858 that they passed on April 30th. And that was one of the very things she stated in her press conference was, this is unconstitutional. I can't even sign it if I wanted it to because it's, it covers more than one topic. It violates our, our state constitution. Which is really funny because all, all her other orders covered multiple grounds. Exactly. I couldn't go on my boat for a while, but then also Sarah couldn't open her salon. So, and then she also got a cease and desist, so it's obviously being enforced as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, in fact, that's another topic. But um, <laughs> so um, our state constitution um, also prohibits um, any law um, from modifying a prior law without containing the whole text of that law as amended. So in other words, you can't just have a new law in the books that says, um, you know, this little piece of our um, laws about driving on freeways uh, is we're going to put this in here and it's changing this other piece. Like you can't, you can't make it confusing for people. Um, our constitution, and that is um, Article 4, Section 25, says that you have to basically reprint or reproduce the entire text of the law that's amended. So it's one cohesive picture. And she didn't do that either. She didn't do that at all, ever. Uh, all these laws that she's attempting to modify in these executive orders, she never even references the title of the act she's amending. She doesn't reference um, all the statute numbers, the MCL, whatever number. She does not um, re-quote or, or reprint uh, the entire language of that particular statute at all, ever, let alone to do it every single time she's trying to amend a law. It'd be physically impossible. The orders would be thousands of pages long because she's literally covering so many topics and touching on so many laws that um, it would, I mean, she would still be writing them. The very first one, she'd probably still be writing. So at any rate, so she is stepping outside of that authority in that aspect. Um, but our, our Constitution also requires under Article 4, Section 27, that before any new laws are enforced, uh, the governor has to wait 90 days uh, to enforce them after they're enacted, unless two-thirds of the legislature votes to give it immediate effect. So clearly, we have not had any votes uh, from the legislature on whether to give immediate effect to any of these particular executive orders, let alone a two-thirds majority. Um, and so she's violating um, Article 4, Section 27. Interestingly enough, Article 4, Section 39 of our state constitution requires all of our state and local governmental operations to continue even in periods of emergency. Yet, all these stay-at-home orders say the local government is prohibited. Oh, you know what? Let me look for the language on that. I wasn't going to talk about that, but... Um, it's quite special. Um, she shuts down all local government functions. I want to say it's maybe paragraph or uh, section six, 
page 372 of one of these orders, I'm pretty sure. Um, and there's but, 97 orders here in Michigan, right? 97 as of right now, but <laughs> I, she I, could be writing them as we speak. I'm hearing rumblings of more things going out, so it wouldn't surprise me. Paragraph 7 used to be the paragraph of exceptions to the stay-at-home order. For some reason, it is now it now reads as follows. In all, all in-person all in person government activities at whatever level state county or local are suspended unless and then there's you know all these let's see a b c d e f right um so let me just say anything that starts off by saying all in person government activities at any at whatever level are suspended well when you have Article 4, Section 39 of our state constitution, the whole point of that article, the whole point of that section, I should say, is to enforce that, hey guys, even if we're at war, we will have our government functioning. And here's specific provisions to ensure that our government continues to function in the state of Michigan. So, um, also, Article 11, section 1 of our state constitution requires that all public officers, all, legislators, judges, law enforcement, school board members, local city council members, township trustees, governor, attorney general, all of them, have to swear an oath to support the U.S. and Michigan constitutions. Oddly enough, there is no language. At first I was like, why does it say, it doesn't actually say that you have to um, swear to uphold every law in the state of Michigan. It says you are swearing to uphold the Constitution of the state of Michigan and of the United States. And when you think about it, it's because they knew that there are often times where um, statutes are enacted that are unconstitutional. So why put someone in a bind where they have taken an oath to uphold and support both a constitution and a statute when the statute might violate the constitution? The oath only requires our, um, see the microphone's trying to get me every time now. Um, I know the, the pain. <laughs> the, um, the constitution, or the, the oath only requires them to uphold the U.S. and Michigan Constitution for that very reason. So um, any governor, police officer, anyone else that's trying to enforce these executive orders are in many ways violating our, um, our Constitution and they're acting outside of the scope of their governmental authority. They're actually violating the law too, but let's just keep it super simple and the authority that they get is derived from the Constitution. So they are literally uh, in the role of government authority, but they are acting outside of the scope of that governmental authority by violating the very provisions of our Constitution meant to restrain uh, improper government behavior. So that's where I tell people Look at Romans 13.7, which I, my version I, I think would have been a uh, NIV 84, but maybe not. Um, probably. It's probably an NIV 84. It's the most popular translation. It so. is usually my favorite one, but I, I don't know for sure. I didn't write it down here. <laughs> so 
Um, Romans 13, 7 tells us to give everyone what you owe him. And then it tells, you know, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you, you know, give, if you owe someone respect, give them respect. What I need to make clear for people is that we do not owe it to the governor to follow her instead of our constitutions or our laws. Um, we have a government, we the people, established our governments based on our state and federal constitutions. So we actually owe it to each other to follow the constitutions. Those documents are the very foundation of the government authority to do anything in our country at any level. So when someone is feeling that the Bible tells them you can never go against what the government is doing, we need to remember it's not the people. It's not even necessarily the positions. I mean, for the most part it is. But if the position is somehow uh, set up in a way to violate the terms of the Constitution, then I would say the position itself doesn't have proper authority. Um, so we need to pay that respect to and follow the constitutions because that is the source of the governing authority here in the United States and certainly in Michigan. But I would also say people need to remember Isaiah 117. We're, taught, we're told we need to seek justice and rebuke the oppressor. Um, what's happening here is very oppressive and it's too bad that I didn't think to bring all of the um, the case law and statutes that I have on point for this because there are many cases and many historical documents on point that talk about the whole point of separation of powers is that we need to make sure, especially with the executive and legislative branches, that no one person or governing body ever has both the executive and the legislative powers because once that happens, that liberty can never um, survive in that environment. In fact, that is where tyranny survives. That is where oppression is born. So, and those are not my words. Those are words that have been talked about in our country for quite a few years. So um, that is exactly why we developed the separation of powers. Um, but we need to remember that in Isaiah, um, we're, we're the whole scenario, the whole talk of seeking justice and rebuking the oppressor is coming in the context of um, dealing with a rebellious government. That's exactly what that whole book is about. So God knows there are governments that go wrong. It doesn't mean follow them. Um, he's telling us to seek justice and rebuke the oppressor. Um, Ezekiel 11, 1 through 4, also tells us that when, quote, leaders of the people, right? So like our governor, um, are giving wicked advice to the people of their city, in other words, those they govern. God calls us to speak out against them. Um, and some translations I looked at called it to um, uh, uh, prophecy against them in, in the, the sense of speaking the right words at the right time in the right way, not foreseeing the future. But yep. um, So like, yeah, speaking truth essentially yes. instead. Um, so that is exactly what I've been doing, and that's exactly what I'm encouraging and, and almost quite demanding my fellow citizens to do because that is the biblical mission. 
not blindly following a government or a governor who is being oppressive and who is violating the very oath she took to take that office and violating so many constitutional and statutory provisions that she can't even count them all. Uh, that's not what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to be uh, taking care of each other and taking care of those who are vulnerable in our society and uh, seeking justice and speaking against those in leadership who are um, giving wicked advice. So um, anyway, that's, that's particular to the point that you, know, you brought up in Romans 13. Um, yeah, well, another verse that I found very interesting, when you, you use Isaiah 117, one verse that came to mind when I was talking to Ben and Sarah. So for those of you who don't know, I know not all of you are Michigan locals. Uh, we actually have some people that watch from like Europe and Philippines, which is kind of fun. So uh, so some of these people are like probably going like, cool, this constitution is great, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't have one. But uh, so you should get one. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, so we have a, friend, a good friend of mine here. She's actually kind of all over the media right now in Michigan. Uh, with Sarah Huff with Ardor and Grit. She has a salon and she's not been allowed to open, but she's facing closing her business that she started about two and a half years ago. And then there's, a, a, I know, a music shop that shut down in Hastings and these people are now aren't able to work their own livelihoods and they're not being provided for even by, and that's what makes it the oppressor. It's not just going, hey, we're asking you guys to help us out here and help our hospitals out here, which is still, there are things to consider there constitutionally as you've clearly laid out. But not it's not even just that. It's the fact that you're not even providing these people a means to survive this epidemic here. Right. So it's, it's, so it's a double entendre, essentially. So what, what a verse that came to mind is Proverbs 31. Now, a lot of people who read Proverbs 31, they think of the virtuous woman because the rest of it's all about the virtuous woman. But there's this little snippet beforehand that says, open your mouth for the mute in verse 8, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And here's the thing, you can't judge righteously, and you can't, well, you can't open your mouth for the mute and open your mouth and judge righteously if you're, you just think you're supposed to sit down and shut up when people are going, being unjust. And what, and then Jesus also told us to judge righteous judgment. So we are encouraged to what is right, what is wrong, what do I stand for? And these, and it doesn't mean you have to do it so violently, you know, oh, right. I, you know, I'm not saying go burn down the Capitol building by any means, right. but we, we should be able to stand up and how can I defend the rights of the poor and needy if I'm not willing to take a stand for these business owners who are now going to be very poor and very needy at the end of all of this. Uh, and I, I know you, you've got another gun loaded there, but real quick, another one that pops into mind is 1 Timothy 5.8, uh, a video I did recently here in Michigan kind of got around, but it says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So taking away people's ability to even provide for their families is making them, in this word, to say, hey, if you're not providing, you're worse than an unbeliever. So also, this is a religious right to be able to work. And we're having that removed from people. And then on, obviously, it's uh, going against the very authorities. So anyway, those are some verses that came to my mind as you were speaking about that. So I don't know. It looks like you pulled something else up there. So what do you got? <laughs> oh, there, there's so much. I got to try to reel my brain in. Um, you know, for the Michigan listeners, it's also important to realize that the very statutes she is talking about, um, the um, 
MCL 30.403 is part of the, it's the main piece of the Emergency Management Act of 1976. And um, 10.31 is the main point of the uh, Emergency Powers of Governor Act of 1945. Um, a few things about this. One is um, some of the local trial level judges um, court of Claims or otherwise, some of them have ruled in the governor's favor by claiming things like, well, under the 1976 law, she did violate that, but the 1945 law allows her to go ahead and do whatever she wants. So for example, the main issue in Michigan um, that at least is raised by the legislature in their lawsuit against the governor is that um, MCL 30.403 allows the governor to um, issue a state of emergency and then therefore act upon it um, until the passage of either the emergency has now under control to the point that government normally can, you know, normal functions can take over of government uh, to address the emergency, or that 28 days has passed. And so if 28 days has passed, the only way that those emergency powers can continue is if the legislature gives an extension by uh, a majority vote. So um, the legislature did vote to extend the uh, um, emergency powers on April 7th all the way through April 30th. But on April 30th, they took no such vote to extend. And uh, a no vote or a vote for no is the same result. Uh, there is no extension past April 30th. So um, after April 30th, even if we say that they were totally legal and totally constitutional before April 30th, after April 30th, obviously not by the, own, by the statute itself. So what the governor has been claiming and the attorney general and now some of these uh, trial court judges is that, well, you just get to separate them out. The governor gets to cherry pick. She gets to say, well, it's the same emergency powers we're talking about. It's the same material. It's the same subject. But um, we get to not listen to that one. And instead, we're going to listen to this one. You know, we're going to go with the 1945 Act. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that blows my mind. It, 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 it doesn't. It, it doesn't even have common sense. Um, there are so many uh, law, you know, um, Supreme Court, Court of Appeals cases on point that say, nope, if it's the same subject, the laws must be read together. There's also law on, case law on point that says, if you have two that are the same subject, but maybe, maybe they are contradicting in some way, um, you go with the newer one, not the older one which is the opposite of what they did here. There's also a case law in point that says, if you do have one that you know there's any kind of contradiction, then you go with the one that is more specific, not the one that's more general. Further, there's case law in point that says, if you have one, uh, there's any kind of possible conflict, but you have a statute that is both the newer one and more specific, you totally go with that one over the general older one. So here, what we have is a 1945 act, which is um, not as specific, and it's older. Um, and it, it, look at the context. It is within the whole chap chapter 10 of our laws, deals with the governor's powers to do anything. 
So that particular act is only three statutes, and it's probably in totality maybe like 12 sentences between all three statutes. Not very much there. The purpose is to lay the foundation for a power to be used um, to be able to better coordinate the functions of government during a time of rioting or some other disaster that needs to be addressed. So um, fast forward to 1976, the newer and more specific statute. Um, the whole point of that is to lay out a lot of specifics and um, to clarify timelines, to enhance the powers actually that the governor would have, to create more specific um, events which would qualify for the usage of um, the emergency powers available to her. Um, and so I could go on in, in, in quite you know, long detail about those differences, but the point is clear that the 1970s, everyone, everyone, Democrat, Republican, Independent, it doesn't matter, uh, 19, the 1976 Act, we can all agree, is newer than the 1945 Act. I think. I think that's a fair, fair assessment to say we can agree. <laughs> and when you have um, the 1945 Act is literally 10.31, 10.32, 10.33, and has maybe 12 sentences, um, that I think we can all agree is more general than the 1976 Act, which goes uh, 30.401 all the way through 30.421. So one through 21 statutes, and each one of those has a, a lot of sentences. Um, I don't know how many sentences, but far greater than those in the 1945 Act. So I would think just by looking, not even at the subject, but just at the number of sentences and the number of words and the way they, they provide much more definition and uh, get more intricate, intricate in, de in describing the functions of these emergency powers, I think we could all agree that the 1976 Act is also far more specific than the 1945 Act. So I really don't know how they're getting around that. I mean, uh, besides all the other things that are clearly unconstitutional that we have already talked about, and there's plenty more that are unconstitutional, but um, even just the rules of statutory construction, even just the way that we're supposed to read the laws, it's very clear. And, and something that's important to point out too is that a lot of these people that have been fighting with me on Facebook about, well, the 1945 law says she can do it without any, you know, 28 day requirement. No. The 1976 Act says she has 28 days to exercise these powers, and at the end of the 28 days, she has to have legislative approval to go beyond that. The 1945 law says zilch about a time requirement. It doesn't say she doesn't have one. It just doesn't talk about a time requirement. Those are two very different things. But like I mentioned before, even if we want to say it's a point of contention between the two, uh, the rules of statutory construction require us to go with the more specific and the newer statute, especially one that is more specific and newer. So um, there, the actual laws themselves are not being followed. Funny thing, we're talking about laws. <laughs> Our Michigan law defines what a law is. MCL 8.8. .8. A law is a public act of the legislature, so the Emergency Management Act of 1976, for example, um, an initiated law adopted by the people 
we have uh, procedures in our constitution that talk about uh, referendums and, and um, um, initiated legislation. Um, and um, also, choice, number, choice letter C, an executive order, oh, okay, by the governor, okay, submitted to the legislature, hmm, pursuant to Article 2, Section 5 of the State Constitution of 1963 and having the force of law. Hmm. Did she do that? Nope, pretty sure she didn't. She pretty much said in all her press conferences, she gets to do whatever she wants and she doesn't care what the legislature says, so she's not gonna submit anything to them. She might have mailed them a copy and said, here's your souvenir, but she did not ask them <laughs> to approve or deny of what she has done. And she certainly has not ever referenced Article 2, Section 5, um, excuse me, Article 5, Section 2 of our state constitution. So when we have an executive order that is trying to exercise control um, on the people themselves, not simply, uh, let me back up and say, because somebody talked about some executive orders that Trump has been doing, and I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about presidential executive orders, but essentially, when you have an executive order in an emergency situation, the executive order can definitely be used to lift restrictions upon businesses or upon individuals when those restrictions are causing a problem in addressing the emergency. So to the extent that Governor Whitmer has released or um, lessened restrictions on uh, people who are in the medical field, uh, they can come in from other states and they can work at hospitals and treat COVID-19 patients in a way that is more, um, you know, it's a looser way than um, the traditional, you know, any other time in, in our state's history where people want to come here and practice medicine of whatever, as a nurse, as a doctor, or whatever. Um, they, they have less restrictions now in doing so. Makes sense, right? Um, she also loosened the restrictions on... Um, gasoline so we have rules in Michigan with freezing I'm assuming um, with the the volume or the um, viscosity I'm, I'm losing the the thickness basically of the gas you know we have winter gas and we have summer gas here in Michigan mm -hmm. and so that's actually set in law and so she modified the law to the extent that the restrictions the law places upon businesses or upon people are loosened for the time being so that they could continue to run through the product that was already there or something of, of that nature. Um, I would argue that's probably okay because she's loosening restrictions upon the people. And that's almost always a good thing to loosen the restrictions upon the people. I mean, the authority of the government comes from the people, at least in the United States. So um, uh, let's see, what else did she do? Um, she did a couple of other, um, uh, there was uh, some sort of restrictions about transportation uh, of supplies or things. I don't know if it actually dealt with things like Amazon delivery trucks or if it was just talking about more mass delivery of different items to factories, but there was something where she was loosening the requirements upon um, transportation companies uh, during COVID-19. So that would be something that, okay, it's loosening a requirement that was otherwise imposed simply by the government. Uh, so yeah, okay. And, and so the, one of the recent things that Trump did was to loosen the requirements, um, and now it's totally escaping my mind of what he did, but 
whatever somebody had brought up to my attention, well, President Trump did this executive order that did this. It's the same concept. It was loosening a requirement upon businesses or upon the people. It was not creating new restrictions upon the people. So, um, so that would be an, an important point. But at any rate, yeah, so, so the law, as it's defined here, is not at all one of these executive orders that is placing new restrictions upon people. And so she wants them enforced as law. Uh, we have the um, uh, misdemeanor charge, which is uh, 90, up to 90 days in jail and up to a $500 fine, or one, one or the other, or both. Um, and additionally, and this is a whole other ball of wax I'd have to get into it some other time, but the um, $1,000 civil infraction tickets that we've been hearing about, like those that were issued to all of the I believe that's what was issued to the hairstylist at the <clears throat> Capitol haircutting on the lawn two days ago. Yep, it was. Sarah got one, so. Um, so the civil infraction tickets and the licensing consequences. So, for example, a restaurant or bar who opens now is being threatened with having their liquor license taken away. Or a barber or hairstylist is, having, is being threatened with having their barber's or cosmetology license taken away. Those two things the civil infraction, and the licensing issue have no authority in the Emergency Management Act or the Emergency Powers of Governor Act at all. In fact, they're not even in the executive orders. Go figure. What are they in? They are contained in uh, two uh, April 2nd, 2020, emergency orders not executive orders, emergency orders written by the director of the Department of Health and Human Services here in Michigan. And then the second order, uh, that one, the governor signed at the bottom in concurrence with the director of the Department of Health and Human Services. So essentially, I guess she's putting her stamp of approval on that, but it, those are not even published in the same way that um, the statute, in fact, shoot, I don't have the statute with me. Uh, the statute, the Emergency Powers of Governor Act and the Emergency Management Act uh, talk about that you have to essentially publish for the people in a particular place where these executive orders would be, these emergency power executive orders. And so those two orders, they're not on there because they're not her executive orders, although she's claiming that she's concurring with them and therefore trying to give them some sort of power. Anyway, um, interestingly enough, it is a misdemeanor, but it's also now this civil infraction and this uh, licensing violation consequence. Um, if you violate any of the executive orders or even the 200 plus frequently asked questions section of michigan.gov slash coronavirus. <laughs> Who knew? Have you ever heard of that? That you can actually get a thousand dollar ticket or lose your license for practicing whatever business because you violated, you violated a frequently asked questions section. It doesn't even sound correct grammatically to say that. How can you violate a frequently asked <laughs> questions section? But that is what this emergency order does. And why? Why did they do this? They decided to do this because they felt they needed um, additional 
oh gosh, what is that word? Uh, incentive for people to follow these orders. Okay, well, guess what? Our laws don't actually work that way. Um, <laughs> certainly the governor is never allowed to declare when things are crimes or, you know, a variety of other things like this. Um, so anyway, those are just some additional uh, nuances. Um, but I mentioned secretary, secretary, separation of powers earlier, and so I just wanted to give people context. So I talked about Article 3, Section 2 in our state constitution. Um, and basically... All these times I'm mentioning Constitution, it's our state Constitution here in Michigan. I will try to be very purposeful, purposeful when I say um, a provision of the U.S. Constitution. Okay. Um, but Article 4, Section 1 gives the legislative power, the, the power to make laws, to the legislature. Um, Article 5, Section 1 gives the power to enforce the laws and be in the executive branch to the governor. And Article 6, Section 1 of our state constitution gives judicial powers to the courts. Wow. So um, it doesn't actually just say in Article 3, Section 2, it actually continues in ver variety of uh, sections of our state constitution to spell out who gets which powers. Um, also important to this concept of this is, this is government by the people, right? This is government uh, that has the authority based on the consent of the governed. So that whole concept is embodied throughout our state constitution, throughout our state laws. Um, so we have Freedom of Information Act. Most people know what that means. We have the Open Meetings Act. Um, by the way, in case you didn't know, the governor and these executive orders actually set aside most of the provisions of the Freedom of Information Act and the Open Meetings Act. Doesn't surprise. <laughs> right. I mean, and aside from the fact that all in-person government functions are apparently illegal, according to her, uh, she wanted to additionally make sure we knew we couldn't go to the open meetings of public bodies. But um, So anyway, we have those two acts that... Um, let me let me think for a second. I want to double check. Yes. Okay. I was thinking. I had to think for a minute to make sure those are the statutes I remember looking up. So, if you look at the Freedom of Information Act of 1976 and the Open Meetings Act of 1976, you might want to uh -oh. think about how they probably were enacted by the same legislative individuals, the same legislature, uh, as those who enacted the Emergency Management Act of 1976. Whoops. <laughs> Legislative intent might be clearly uh, ascertainable by looking at the facts there. But at any rate, we have Article 4, Section 20 of our state constitution, which require open meetings. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's the title of the section, open meetings. Um, we also have an Enhanced Access to Public Records Act in the state of Michigan and Electronic Open Access to Government Act. And I believe that one was from 2016 and the one before that was in the 90s. But at any rate, that kind of gives you an idea of some of the 
things we talked about. Um, not to mention Article 4 of our state constitutions, Section 24, 25, 27 that I talked about earlier, where you have to, um, where laws can only be on one subject, and you have to include the whole text of the law as amended when you um, change the law. Um, and um, what was the other piece to that? Oh, and you have to wait 90 days uh, before enforcing a new law unless you've had a supermajority vote uh, in favor of immediate enforcement of that or immediate enactment of that law. Um, those are all put in place so that people have the opportunity as individuals, as members of the general public, to participate fully and understand what's going on. So another important thing that people have been wondering is whether they're conservative traditionally in a political sense, but uh, feel constrained by Romans 13 or the leaders of their church or whomever, um, or they're more liberal in a political sense and they believe that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are cute little documents that we can look at in a museum. Regardless of which one of those two you might be, if you are questioning whether we should be um, you know, really fighting these exec executive orders and all these other things being done based on those, I want you to think about what this means in times of emergency. So people have been saying, okay, even if we have all these provisions in the Constitution, in our laws, whatever, those things can get set aside in times of emergency. Well, our Declaration of Independence was actually drafted and signed in the, one of the most urgent emergencies our country has ever known. Probably the biggest emergency our country has ever known. Hence the need to create a new country. Um, <laughs> so we've also had um, a variety of things from plagues and, and uh, you know, viruses and, uh, um, you know, smallpox. I mean, We've had a variety of things that are considered um, of an epidemic type of um, proportion. Uh, we've had the Great Depression. We've had uh, September 11th. Um, we've had um, 2001, of course. Uh, we've had uh, the season of Hurricane Katrina. And then um, I believe that was the same year that, anyway, when uh, we had three hurricanes, Rita and Ivan and whatever the other one was, that all crisscrossed over Florida and then messed up Louisiana and whatnot. Um, and my family's uh, from the Orlando, part of my family's from the Orlando area and we're living down there at the time. So um, that's Oof. very personal to me. Those situations, we've encountered things like that all, all the time. And so our founders knew exactly what emergency was um, our founders knew times of disease, of famine, of hardship. Um, and in fact, a lot of the case law, I you know, I apologize, I don't have it with me, but a lot of the case law on point from both the Michigan Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court emphasizes that emergency does not create new powers for the government. It does not expand upon the powers the government has under legal authority in the Constitution or whatnot. It may um, allow powers that already existed to essentially start to be used, but it does not create new powers, and it does not reduce or diminish the restrictions that our Constitution places on governmental action. 
at all. So um, certainly our Constitution doesn't have that in there, and um, there are cases that spell that out. Um, of course, there have been justices along the way that think they get to take a pencil, uh, that you know the whole Constitution is written in pencil and they can just erase and then rewrite, but there's no authority to do that. When they're making it up, they're making it up, and I don't care what level of respect we're supposed to give them when they're going outside of the bounds of what our very government is created to do and allowed to do, um, we can't simply follow men. We need to follow the law and follow the law, the supreme law of the land, which as it has always been, is the Constitution of the United States. And the only second, uh, in, in a close second to that here in Michigan would be our state constitution. So uh, with that in mind, US Constitution, um, First Amendment, says that you cannot abridge our um, right to free speech and of the press and to peaceably assemble, et cetera, right? To religious freedoms. Right, yeah. So we have those unabridged rights. Um, our state constitution preamble says that we created the whole constitution here in our state to secure the blessings of freedom undiminished for ourselves and our posterity. I mean, for those of you who are arguing with me right now, read it. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what it says. So clearly, unabridged and undiminished, we are allowed to exercise our constitutional rights. That means even in time of emergency. And then, like I mentioned before, Article 4, Section 39, literally a whole section in our state constitution is devoted to making sure our government continues to function as normal even in times of emergency. That word is used, emergency. I'm not making this up. I'm not stretching the truth. I'm just telling you the words of our Constitution. We also have to consider um, MCL 30.421, the, the tail end of the Emergency Management Act of 1976, the one with more specifics, you know, the one that's supposed to matter. Um, so interestingly enough, I believe the title, the short title of that statute is um, um, Heightened State of Alert. I think that's what they call it. Um, and so you might think, well, this doesn't necessarily apply to like a normal state of emergency or state of disaster. But you actually have to read the whole thing. And do I think the organization of this was kind of crappy? Yeah, but the text still matters, okay? Um, you don't pick form over function or, you know, substance. So um, that very statute, helps if I'm actually looking at the correct material, um, 30.421. Even in a heightened state of alert, um, but let me back up and say, it's in that provision, but it doesn't say just in a heightened state of alert. It says, 30.421, under this act, under the Emergency Management Act, the whole thing, it doesn't say this section of the act, it says the whole act, the governor's powers shall, means must, be consistent with the provisions of the state constitution of 1963 and the federal constitution. What's important about that is that it's saying she does not get to do anything with these emergency powers that violate our constitutional rights, but it doesn't just say rights. 
it says that she can't violate any provision or she has to be consistent with the with all the provisions of these two documents. So that includes the provisions of the state constitution and the US Constitution that give uh, provide for restraints on certain powers that she has or any of the government has. So a lot of our constitution is literally written to restrain the government from doing certain things. And this statute, that part doesn't even need to be in there. But that, that part of the statute is there to say, hello, make sure you're not forgetting, even in times of emergency, you have to follow the restrictions placed upon the government that are put into our US and Michigan constitutions and acknowledge the rights that the people have in the US and Michigan constitutions, even in an emergency. Somehow, these judges and all the lawyers that have been the official attorneys on these cases, I've never heard of anybody mention that. Maybe I've missed it. I'll be honest, there are literally thousands of pieces of paper filed in each of these cases by now. I could have missed it. But I have never once heard any of these attorneys or judges talking about it at all. Even in watching in their oral arguments. I've never heard them even mention that. So, also, prosecutors in 30.421 are um, prohibited from prosecuting violations of executive orders in any manner that violates any constitutional provision. Okay, so the governor has to exercise the powers in a way that is consistent with all the constitutional provisions. Prosecutors are prohibited from prosecuting in any manner that violates any constitutional provision. And prosecutors are further prohibited in the prosecuting of these executive order violations from prosecuting, quote, conduct presumptively protected by the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So, okay, that's a lot of legal jargon. Let's just boil it down for non-attorneys. When you go to court for a crime, if you're charged with any crime, a misdemeanor, a, a felony, it doesn't matter. The prosecution has the burden of proof, right? Everybody knows that, especially after O.J. Simpson's trial when I was in sixth grade. Um, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. No, no. Um, beyond a reasonable <laughs> doubt. Sorry, mine got totally sidetracked there. Um, beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So the government has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt that you um, fulfilled all the requirements of that particular crime. So. You don't have to, you could literally, if I was prosecuting and you were the defendant, you could literally sit in your chair the entire time, say nothing, have no attorney you know, speak on your behalf, just do nothing at all, sit there perfectly still for the entire trial. And if the government's case was still so terrible that they did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed the crime, then you would have to be found not guilty, okay? Obviously that's not how smart people pursue their own defense, right? They need to show, no, oh my gosh, I'm innocent, oh my gosh, I'm innocent. Um, so, the thing is though, if you do want to assert a defense, there are certain things like affirmative defenses and whatnot that you have to, as the defendant then, bear the burden of proof upon asserting such a defense, okay? So on that particular side, you're not taking the whole burden of the entire you know, case onto you, but of your particular defense. Um, but what this does, when it says that there's a presumpt uh, conduct presumptively protected by the First Amendment, that means the burden of proof switches. So 
you are no longer as a defendant required to be the one to prove that you have this conduct that you were exercising by cutting hair on the lawn or whatever, that you were exercising this conduct in, um, in the exercise of the First Amendment rights and that you have the right to do that and you know whatever other elements that you would have to otherwise prove to assert such a defense. No, this statute says that the burden of proof has switched. It is presumptively protected by the First Amendment. And the prosecutor is the one who has to overcome that presumption. So um, that's an important point that, again, somehow I have not heard any of the attorneys arguing about yet, which I don't know why. Because I'm going to tell you this. I am not the smartest attorney out there. No. There's a lot of attorneys probably way smarter than me. But I'm reading the law. So... Um, I know the feeling. As a pastor, people get mad at me all the time for just reading the Bible, so I, I get it. <laughs> and that's a whole other podcast, too. That is it? a whole other podcast. So the important point here, though, is all these provisions I just talked about in 30.421, are um, they're not carve-outs for certain individual behaviors. You may do this you may do this. No, they're not carve-outs for individual behaviors. They are stern reminders to prosecutors and to the governor and to anyone in the executive branch and the judicial branch that there are restraints placed upon the government in regulating the people, and those restraints do not go away in times of emergency. Not at all. So... Um, and I think the reason why they placed that provision in 30.421 is because that is the one that's a heightened state of alert. And so I think the argument might be they wanted to ensure that if they had placed that provision somewhere else, and all the other provisions, they talk about just normal state of emergency. So if they had placed that provision, that sentence, or those few sentences, in um, you know 30.403, or, or any of the other ones, then in theory, someone might be able to argue, a governor might be able to argue, oh, well, now we're in a heightened state of alert, and clearly they didn't put that, that sentence or those provisions in the heightened state of alert part, so this is a heightened state of alert. It's meant to be totally separate from the rest of the Emergency Management Act. So I, I said earlier that it was kind of like a crappy way of organizing the law, but if you think about it, I, I guess it makes sense why they plunked it right in that particular statute to say, to make the point, it applies here and all these other statutes that are on point. So anyway, um, I think those are um, definitely important points to, um, to keep in mind. Um, and so not only are these rights guaranteed to us, not only um, do, you know, all these provisions that I've talked about have, oh, and I skipped a whole bunch that would have been super important. Um, I'm just going to quickly mention, just to give you an idea, okay? So I mentioned, you know, the people's participation is super important. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of mentioned about some of the FOIA and, op you know, Open Meetings Act and whatnot. Um, but it's, it's important to also recognize um, we have our, our preamble to our U.S. Constitution. Um, oops, that's the Declaration of Independence. Also important, just not what I was looking for. Um, our preamble says that we, the people, 
are creating this constitution because we want to establish justice, because we want to secure the blessings of liberty, capital B, capital L, for a reason, um, to ourselves and our posterity. So um, uh, that whole notion of the premise of government is to secure life, liberty, and property, or life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is not to just control people and tell them what to do all the time. The whole reason our government exists is to protect our rights, to secure the blessings that come from the judges. I mean, wait, that's what some people argue. To secure the blessings that come from Almighty God. God created us. And no, that's not some conservative, crazy person notion because our government created here in our constitution says that these are blessings of liberty, which um, again, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, um, that we are endowed with these blessings by our creator, cr creators in a capital C too. So that means that guy, like the big guy, the one. <laughs> and in case you were thinking, well, that's just a really old document belongs in a museum, doesn't matter now. Uh, we really need to recognize that our state constitution, we currently cite as the state constitution of 1963, but let us remember in November 2018, we actually had some constitutional amendments. And this is the constitution as, that was recently amended as, as was amended as recently as 2018. So this is still in existence, right? We, the people of the state of Michigan, grateful to Almighty God for the blessings of freedom and earnestly desiring to secure these blessings undiminished to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution. So you can call me a crazy conservative person, but that's the very language of the Constitution because it is the very premise of everything that comes after it. God gave us our blessings of liberty. The government does not get to just randomly take them away, doesn't get to do it in times of emergency or when things are just tough or when people are dying. That's just not how it works. Um, so, and obviously we have things like um, in our US Constitution, we have the Fifth Amendment and the 14th Amendment, the due process clauses, you are not allowed to be denied um, <clears throat> life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Um, similarly, we have um, Article One, Section 17 of our state constitution, which has the same exact wording, you're not allowed to be deprived of uh, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. We have the 10th Amendment, which uh, specifically, it says any powers we did not give to the federal government, they still exist, but it's not ones that the federal government just to, gets to claim later. No, those powers either belong to the people or to the states. So, um, and, and also we have constitutional provisions that clearly say any of the rights that we're talking about um, that are not specific specifically identified in either the Michigan or the US constitutions are not necessarily uh, lost because they weren't mentioned in the constitutions. No, they're still reserved. These are the, just the ones we've chosen to tell you about at this time, essentially is what the documents say. So 
all these things go to that point of p the power is inherent in the people. Um, we also have things, though, like of a logistical nature. Article 2, Section 8 provides for a whole process of recalls. Article 2, Section 9 talks about referendums and initiatives to change the law started by the people themselves. Um, article, I believe it's Article 2, Section, or excuse me, Article 12, Section 2 that talks about, I have the Constitution. My bad. I should probably just look at it. Um, article 12, Section 2. I was right. That's great. Um, <laughs> Provisions for amending the Constitution by petition and vote of the electors, meaning people like me. So it doesn't just say the government gets to change the Constitution. No, it says the people get to change the Constitution. And even if the legislative body was going to propose amendments to the Constitution, the second part of that is still has to be voted on by the people. So... Um, we have that in there. We also have, like I mentioned earlier, Article 4, Section 20 that talks about open meetings. Um, Article 5, Section 10 is the process for removing officers of the executive branch. Article 5, Section 30 provides term limits for those serving in the executive branch. Article 4, Section 54 is uh, what provides term limits for legislators. Article, um, <laughs> forgot my Roman numerals, I think that's a six. Article 6, Section 2 provides term limits for our Supreme Court justices here in Michigan. Article uh, 6, Section 9 is the term limits for Court of Appeals judges. And Section 12 is the term limits for Circuit Court judges. Article 16 provides the term limits for probate judges. Um, Article um, uh, hopefully I said section on all those. There were not articles. Section 2, section 9, section 12, section 16. And article 6, section 25, it provides for a process to remove judges if need be. So, uh, oh, and article 11, section 7 provides for an impeachment process for civil officers with great detail. So we need to be cognizant of the fact that these are, <clears throat> are several constitutional provisions in place here in Michigan because we wanted to reinforce this is our government. This is not Gretchen Whitmer's government. This is not an oligarchy where it's Gretchen and it's Dana Nessel and it's, you know, the, I can't even remember his name, but the director of the Par Department of Health and Human Services here or a few of these judges. No, this is our government, all of our government. And we have a contract that cannot just be uh, ignored it has to be followed. It's the whole basis of them to act on our behalf in the first place. Also, it's a little interesting. I don't remember if I said it because I've talked your ear off enough as it is today. But in the Declaration of Independence, it talks about one of the main reasons why they felt the need to walk away from the crown and establish this new government is that the powers that be at the time were, quote, suspending their legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us. So kind of like when a governor says the legislature isn't needed, I'm just going to create new laws in these executive orders and have everyone in the state uh, enforce them for me. I'm glad it's not on radio because, you know, I don't even have necessarily sounds to make in response to that other than whatever that facial expression was that I just came <laughs> up with. So, super important. 
<clears throat> to kind of close this whole philosophy out. Um, so the oath of office, like I mentioned earlier, that every public official has to take here in Michigan is that they will enforce the laws of the United, excuse me, the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Michigan. Does not say they will enforce the laws because sometimes we oops, we create laws that shouldn't be created because some of these other processes are not followed. Like when the doors to the legislature are closed on April 30th and it violates a particular section of our state constitution, any laws that might have been born out of such a legislative session probably shouldn't be enforced. Um, anyway, that's just an example. Um, but there's a reason why the Constitution here in Michigan says you're going to support the two constitutions, but we're not going to require you to say you're going to always support the laws. Um, and then another important point, which I take for granted, and maybe I've hammered this home enough, but no law or executive order can ever go beyond or violate or modify a provision of the U.S. or Michigan constitutions. And I have had people ask me that after watching several of my videos. Well, but the law allows her to do this, this, and that. It, do, it actually doesn't. But even if it did, it's not enforceable. The Constitution is enforceable. That is the thing that we are all obliged to enforce as attorneys or uh, public officials. So interesting is if you have a governor or an attorney general or a judge, or a prosecuting attorney, or a police officer, or a local school board member, or uh, a, a local city clerk in a small little town somewhere here in Michigan, who is a, a health department official, who is attempting to enforce these executive orders, or uh, even the emergency orders that we talked about, if they're attempting to enforce these when they clearly don't comport with the law, the legal requirements of the statutes themselves, they obviously go outside of the scope of what the Constitution allows them to do. Then those public officials, whether it's the smaller, you know, lower level local government, whether it's the governor or the, justice, uh, this, uh, the chief justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, doesn't matter, everywhere in between. Um, these um, individuals are they're acting outside of the scope of that governmental authority. So what does that mean? Well, that means as a Christian, Romans 13 says, don't follow them. That's, that is not seeking justice. That is not rebuking oppression. That is not giving to them what they are owed. It is certainly not giving your fellow citizens what they are owed. But also it means that they are committing malicious prosecution. Um, which is both a civil and a criminal thing here in Michigan. And I don't have the statute. It's 600. Um, actually, yes, I do. The statute for malicious prosecution here in Michigan is uh, MCL 600.2907. Uh, a case law on point for the common law action uh, for civil liability is a case that I actually can't say. Drulliard, D-R-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D versus Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, which is a case uh, from the Michigan Court of Appeals in 1981. Um, so anyway, we have that. It's also abuse of process. That is a common law 
um, thing. It's basically saying um, you get to sue someone. So, you know, we could sue the governor of the state of Michigan for creating these executive orders that are violating our rights. Um, also, there are two federal statutes on point. Um, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 is something that more, more people than not have heard of, don't necessarily know what it means. It basically is the civil cause of action, um, meaning you as a private individual have the right to sue the governor, a judge, a uh, uh, prosecuting attorney, a local police officer, um, an employee of the uh, Department of Health and Human Services for squashing your rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution. Uh, then there's 18 U.S.C. Section 241, which makes it a crime for them to do that. A crime. Uh-oh. Which is punishable um, in normal circumstances of up to 10 years in prison, but if it has led to uh, a serious injury specifically defined in the statute or a death, then you can get life in prison or even have the death penalty. So for those people that have contacted me yesterday, for example, when I was at the rally or the Freedom uh, Festival in Nuevo, and uh, several individuals actually uh, came up to me to talk to me about loved ones who were trapped in nursing homes under these executive orders are being kept away from their family members, and family members cannot go in and check on them to make sure that they are being properly cared for, that they are receiving their medications, that they are receiving regular screenings and physical therapy and occupational therapy and... Um, that they're being fed and bathed properly and everything else, that uh, there's actually been situations where people have died because of the lack of care they're receiving or the, the poor care that they're receiving in nursing homes now. Mm -hmm. So that would be a death caused from the deprivation of these rights. <laughs> Federal law, not Catherine Henry, Federal law says that is not only a crime, because it's done, and it, 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 I'll be honest, it, it, the, the statute talks about conspiracy that leads to these things. Clearly, this is not one person. I mean, there's no way we could ever say this is one person. This is at least the governor and the attorney general. Okay, so it's at least two people right there, so that's already a conspiracy doing this. Um, but we have all the local um, officials that we've talked about as well. Anyway... So if you have someone in a nursing home who has died because of the poor care they're receiving now during COVID-19 because the family members are no longer able to go in and check on the care that they're receiving, that would be punishable of uh, life in prison or death, the death penalty, under federal statutes. Wow. So this is serious. This is a reason why I've been going around to all these um, festivals and rallies and speaking in front of thousands of people every single time because this is a matter of life and death. This isn't just about supporting our local businesses. I mean, I'm a small business owner. I totally get it. I've had to sacrifice making any kind of money through my law firm through this whole period of time because my mediations were put on hold and normal court proceedings are put on hold um, or they're done by Zoom, which I... That's a whole different podcast. Um, but I, um, I, my whole livelihood in small business has been put on hold because of all this. So I understand the plight of small business owners, and I totally agree. But this is even bigger than that. This isn't just about small businesses. This is about people in nursing homes that are dying. 
This is about the people like a friend of mine, I'm going to try to say this without choking up, a friend of mine whose husband was recently diagnosed with stage four cancer and was in the hospital and was, she was not allowed to see him and her daughter was not allowed to see him. And um, she was not receiving, you know, very good updates from the hospital about how things are happening. And um, I believe it was yesterday morning that um, it was either Wednesday night or Thursday morning this week that he passed away alone. This is not just about wanting a haircut. This is not just about wanting your business to not have to permanently fold. It is about those things, but it's so much bigger than those things. This is about the very freedom that are, the freedoms that are given to us by God, not the government, not the judges, not the governor. The very freedoms given to us by God that we are allowing, to, we're just sitting back and allowing the government to strip those away from us. So that was my three minute answer to your last question, whatever it was. <laughs> um, no, thank you, uh, Catherine, for that. There, there was a lot there. And one thing, you are way better at podcasts than you think you are. That was actually pretty solid. but. Um, you know, there's so much there to that, and that I have friends of mine who have cancer and so many other things that with people who are just, and they can't get proper treatments right now. Um, we, get, we know we're now letting people with COVID-19 into nursing homes for care, and now that we had 20 cases pop up in Grand Haven. This is, and which they're the vulnerable, which is the whole point of the quarantine to begin with. Um, and so this isn't a matter of just Christians, you know, it's just the government asking you to do them a solid. This is, no, this is, this is dealing with life and death. This is dealing with heart and I get it there's it's a hard decision for so many people to make but at the same time we need to stand up for us right and so when it's talking with Romans 13 it's talking about submitting to authorities there's a lot of context that you could take from Romans as well but I'm just to not give you the pastor approach you did a great job there I'm not going to get into that but the whole point is that what authority are we talking about are we talking about the person who's sitting in a chair or are we talking about the very thing that binds them and the thing that binds them is that which gives us the inalienable rights from our creator. And that's the thing where we're dealing with what I encourage you to look it up, study positive, uh, positive rights versus negative rights. Uh, when you're looking at these things, I want you guys to understand the fact that we are as creatures, as people who are born in the image of, who are born and created in the image of God, who are given the breath of life, where the unique creation, you know, we're below the creator, but above the rest of the creation, God gave us certain rights when we were born with, and that is the point of the, all of these is to protect the, their ability for, to seek proper care, to be able to be with their families, to be able to uh, provide for the households and small businesses. Um, it's all those things. Um, so it, it, it's much bigger than people are co currently thinking, and I I think it's because they're not seeing the coverage on these horrible things that are happening where these people are dying and stuff because they're being told, so many people think that by doing this and complying, they're saving lives, when in reality, you're just creating more death in a, just a, a, a more horrific sense. So You know, an important point on that is that, um, so I could spend a ton of time talking about how the government numbers that we've been given, the statistics and the information about COVID-19 is incorrect. 
Um, in fact, I have a website, stopcovidchaos.com, that I created to um, allow people to see the information I've been working on, the, the government sources, the legal documents, et cetera. Um, no, I don't get any of my sources or information from Fox News or from CNN or whatever. Um, my information comes from the actual statutes or constitutional provisions. When it comes to the facts, I go to the CDC. I reference the World Health Organization. I reference the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. So the very people that are telling us, you need to do this, that's actually where my information comes from. Hmm. And so um, very quickly, just to tell you that, for example, the numbers that we are given in, I, I don't even know, I don't watch the news anymore, I haven't in a long time because of this, but um, we were given daily the number of COVID-19 cases, the number of COVID-19 deaths. The number of deaths in the U.S. that were given is not accurate at all. The number that they give you like in media or uh, if you go to, I think it's cdc.gov slash coronavirus, I believe is the uh, quick you know, way to get to it. Um, at any rate, it, it's th those numbers are not accurate for a variety of reasons. They purposely, first of all, despite the World Health Organization requiring the ICD codes uh, that are used for different um, causes of death and different um, health conditions, those ICD codes, uh, there was one specifically made for laboratory confirmed cases and for assumed cases. So the World Health Organization told every country in the world, by the way, there's 7.1 that's going to be for laboratory confirmed. 7.2 is for all those other cases where it's assumed, it's likely, it's presumed. They've used all those words. Um, the United States says, CDC says, all of our mortality data and statistics and information and reports strictly adheres to the standards put out by the World Health Organization and follows and uses these ICD codes. But, yes, the same CDC says, for COVID-19, we're, we're going to ignore code 7.2. Every single COVID-19 related death is going to go into 7.1. So first of all, that lumps in people that are actually confirmed with having COVID-19 with those that are assumed. Now, why is this important? Because the top six symptoms of COVID-19, as a, according to the CDC, um, are the same top six symptoms of the flu. Um, Not to be confused. <laughs> right. So, um, and flu kills, you know, flu and pneumonia kill on average of uh, 55, since, you know, 2009, have killed an average of 55,000 people per year in the U.S. at least every year. And actually this year alone, uh, in recent years, it was, um, I believe it was 79,000 people that were killed in the U.S. from the flu um, in uh, not the current flu season that we were just ending, not that one, uh, not the one before that, but the one before that. So two flu seasons ago, 79,000 people from the flu. And the last year, I think it went to 69,000, or excuse me, 62,000. But this year, um, they actually, um, they look at Australia's flu season, which starts six months before us and like just kind of migrates. This year was going to be, quote, a particularly deadly flu season, 
with um, the H3N2 strand, which leads to far greater hospitalizations and uh, utilizing um, things like ventilators and other uh, upper respiratory um, equipment. Um, and so we have this super deadly flu season that was anticipated and that they were seeing in Australia. And yet the numbers for flu are like shockingly down this year. I wonder if that's because they're saying if you have a cough and then you died, even if you were hit by a train, in all seriousness, you are marked as COVID-19. Or uh, according to the very medical, provider, medical providers that I'm talking with, doctors, hospital administrators, nurses, physicians, assistants, um, and yes, people that I've looked at face-to-face -face with, um, if you have a uh, person who uh, has tested positive for COVID-19, but they were out drinking, and they have a blood alcohol limit that is five times the legal limit, and they end up dying from that alcohol poisoning, that is labeled as a COVID-19 death. Kid you not. That's some solid math. <laughs> there have actually been multiple instances of car accidents where people die and their label is COVID-19. Why? I don't know, because if the person died in a car accident, you don't know if they even coughed at the time of death, but <laughs> in all seriousness, they're doing that. Um, I, I just... Um, I encountered in Nuevo yesterday a woman uh, who th was talking about her family member who died um, in, in the last 48 hours, I think she was saying, and the hospital administrators were at least nice enough in that case that they asked if they could label the death as COVID-19, even though the death was, I believe she said cancer and had nothing to do with COVID-19, but they asked the family's permission to put COVID-19 on the death certificate. Um, that was nice of them because in most cases they're not asking for permission. So um, it, at any rate, so we have, I mean, it's a legit thing. Besides which, um, I think the reason why they're doing that is because while well, the CDC, the director of the National Center for Health Statistics specifically, part of the CDC, said in, um, I believe it was uh, April 4th, that you have to put on your death certificates, COVID-19, you have to list that as the cause of death, quote, more often than not. It's interesting because I didn't think that they should tell us ahead of time how many deaths we're going to get from any particular cause of death. I thought that just kind of happened naturally and God would know, but I didn't think that the director of the National Center for Health Statistics would know ahead of time how many people were going to die from COVID-19 especially in relation to the rest of the causes of death. Um, in addition to that, because you know that wasn't quite enough, they said, okay, this isn't working, people. We're not seeing the numbers that we need. So they put in writing that, um, I, I wanna say, it's sometime in April, I have the numbers, it's written um, in the document I published on the stopcovidchaos.com website called CDC COVID-19 data, I believe is the document title. Um, they actually said at some time in April that they were going to start t purposely taking, um, let me back up for just a second. So we have ICD codes for COVID-19. We're only using the one 
and claiming that they're all laboratory confirmed, even if somebody coughed but they died of alcohol poisoning. Um, so even though those numbers are clearly over calculated. Um, we have that code. We have flu and COVID-19. We have flu with no COVID-19. And we have um, uh, pneumonia with COVID-19 and pneumonia with no COVID-19. And what they were finding is that, wow, pneumonia is far exceeding the death count from COVID-19. So literally, the director of uh, the National Center for Health Statistics said in this document that is published online, and all of you can see in the URL is actually written specifically in that document I referenced, so you can check it out yourself. Um, well, doctors who um, are the ones that are determining, either treating the patients, they're determining the cause of death. They might be a little too confused. So we, as the super intelligent government officials that are not seeing the patients ourselves, we know better. And so we are going to fix their errors. And so we're going to overcorrect and we're going to take pneumonia, non-COVID-19 pneumonia deaths, and lump them into the provisional counts, i.e. Uh, the um, numbers that are advertised to you every single day. Um, you can trust the government. Yeah. So those, we're going to take COVID-19, even the fake COVID-19, and add pneumonia deaths that are specifically not COVID-19, and lump them in together and give that to you as the number for deaths. Um, there was also something else they did, but um, I mean, just as egregious. So I mean, like we have 47 different ways that they're, it's like, what? Um, but there's additional stuff that I put in that document. And then I put screenshots of the different causes of death. Um, I have screenshots of, you know, a variety of the statistics, but every URL. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. It's coming straight from the CDC. Um, but um, at any rate, I thought it was just kind of, you know, uh, CDC level type thing until I started looking a little bit closer in Michigan. And the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services website basically gives you the same information. So they lump COVID-19 7.2 deaths with 7.1, just all call it laboratory confirmed, even if it's not confirmed in the slightest. And it's just based on the fact that they might have coughed while they were in the presence of another human. So they, they have COVID-19. Um, so we, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services confirms that, but Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, um, if you look at their death counts, mind you, it is the, um, the death certificates are actually sent to the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, right? They're not sent to Michigan.gov. I mean, they're not sent to the, you know, executive branch in general to Governor Whitmer's office. They're sent to the health department. And so what they say is that, I, I haven't looked up the numbers uh, very recently, I have to look at them um, more clearly, but the numbers reported for deaths there are far lower than COVID-19 deaths reported on Michigan.gov. <laughs> or, I, in other words, the, the number science. of deaths reported during the press conferences mm -hmm. with Dr. Janae Caldoun, um, the expert who knows everything, and uh, our Governor Whitmer. So, I mean, I'm just getting my numbers and my data from them. The funny thing is, I did have somebody point out to me once, well, 
But do you think maybe the numbers are lower on the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services website because it says in certain situations the death certificates can take a few weeks or whatever to, to get entered or whatever, to get to the department? Let's think about that for a minute. If the death certificate that certifies the cause of death has not made it to the government office, how are we then calling those deaths, uh, COVID-19 deaths, and adding them into the Michigan.gov numbers that we share in press conferences every day? Aren't we basing our information off of the data of I don't know. I like. Did I? Is that? Clear yeah. Enough? No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Hard to confirm the thing that you haven't received yet. So we're just going <laughs> to grab random numbers and then throw them on there, yep. and say, "Well, this many more people died from COVID nineteen now." So at any rate, the, so I don't know what you even said that made me think of that, but it, it, to the point of like, it's for safety. And it's for, you know, these, these stay-at-home orders, we're going to do the government a solid, right, I think was the phrase that you used. So the thing is, the um, Michigan, or excuse me, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security actually came out a few weeks ago and said, by the way, did I bring that with me? Mm, I don't think I did. They actually came out and said, um, heat, direct sunlight, or humidity, that those were like tested separately. Why it was the Department of Homeland Security doing these tests? I, anyway, I don't even know. But they were testing that and they found that heat, direct sunlight, or humidity, when tested separately, each decreased or basically they killed the virus and they killed it quickly. So um, when you have a bunch of people, especially in summer months, all congregating and getting together, you're going to have heat and you're going to have humidity. You're going to have people sweating and perspiring and you're going to, you know. Um, so those would kill the virus more than people being in cold, sterile environments by themselves. Uh, literally. I mean, those are not my words. Those are from the government. And the... Um, on Sunday, the U.S. Uh, director of the Department of Health and Human Services came out and said that the stay-at-home orders actually kill more people than COVID-19 does, and for a variety of reasons. I mean, they brought up um, just so many, so many aspects to it. But for example, we have like the extraneous uh, unintended consequences. Domestic violence is through the roof. Child abuse, and uh, child abuse and neglect is through the roof. And nobody's ever gonna know what those numbers are because it's not being reported because the school counselors and the coaches and the people at church and the people in their communities and their teachers and the lunch lady and the school bus driver are not seeing those children. So the, those mandated reporters have nothing to report because a Zoom call isn't going to show signs of abuse. Um, besides which, students aren't required to do a Zoom call. So they could be skipping those if they do ever have a bruise across the whole front of their face. At any rate, so you have instances of suicide and mental health uh, issues that are obviously skyrocketing right now because of this. In fact, oh shoot, I forgot the name of that government agency. Another, an additional federal um, uh, government agency executive, you know, a different branch. Um, I want to say it was some sort of uh, Department of Substance Abuse and Mental Health came out uh, from the federal government saying 
um, yeah, we're going to see lasting effects in, in terms of suicides and other mental health related deaths because of how we're treating COVID-19. They're going to they're gonna far outlast what, actually, what we've actually seen in terms of um, COVID-19 deaths. But then you even have like the scientific studies of Germany releasing uh, information about uh, that stay-at-home orders, because of course they got COVID-19 in Europe before we did, so they have, they've had more time to review it. COVID-19 stay-at-home orders actually, scientifically, do not stop the virus from spreading. They don't stop the virus from killing people. They, um, it actually ends up, because of a variety of reasons, you know, more people can actually die from stay-at-home orders than from just being out and living life as normal. As normal, I mean, as normal. Um, in fact, we even saw that in New York, so I don't know if you guys saw that the New York governor, who's a Democrat, who loves his stay-at-home orders and still thinks they're super awesome in keeping people safe, came out and said, well, this new like second mini-wave we've had uh, of, of cases, it's been really concerning. So we did this study, and we were um, at, you know, f figuring out where it came from. And it's a real bummer that I don't have the actual language right in front of me because it's very crystal clear. Um, he said that the people, I mean, he essentially shut down the whole state, right? I mean, really shut down the state. And that despite that, these people are not just getting coronavirus, but ending up in the hospital and have a severe, you know, version of it. And, but he's finding that they are primarily older. They are primarily um, of a minority. Uh, they're prim primarily, um, they're, I forgot some of the other conditions that he was talking about. The interesting thing, though, is that 83% of them are either retired or unemployed and not leaving their home or socializing in any way. And then some people have said, well, yeah, but they have the subway system and they have, you know, mass public transit like we've never even seen here. Well, funny thing is, only 4% of those people that are in now with this, 4% we're utilizing public transportation in New York. 96% of them were not. So, so we, we have all the other implications. We have you know, the science about how it transmits. We have the issues about the numbers are just wrong. We have the issues about you know, the, the science behind how the stay-at-home orders don't work. Uh, I haven't even touched on the obvious things that we've been hearing about herd immunity and how um, you know, things like that are, um, we're able to help our community by being out and if we're asymptomatic or we have very few symptoms, um, we're able to go out there and help our fellow people by um, being that wall, that barrier, because once it gets to someone who is um, not able to, you know, you've already had it, and you're, you have those immune, you know, immunities to it, then you are um, stopping that virus that can no longer go beyond you and transmit to another person. Um, so at any rate, there's just the science, the, you know, the logic, the law, none of it says that we can or should have stay-at-home orders or any of these other wearing mask requirements or socially distancing requirements, like none of that. Oh yeah, 
and that no, I've and that's exactly the, why I've been looking into it too. The more I've studied it, the more I've peeled back the layers. As a pastor, I close my church at first. Well, no, we stayed open a week, and then we closed down for like a couple, and then because I was waiting for good data, and then as I started seeing that wasn't good data coming, it was actually very bad data. Then I was like, okay, we're opening back up. Of course, I know. Of course, they, they never came for me, but then when they went after my friend, I was like, this is a real problem. So. But anyway, um, you know, I really appreciate you coming on because I think there's a lot of information here that is going to help clarify for a lot of people. And I wanted to be able to create a way, when I heard you speak the other day, I was like, I want to create a way for where we can link what you just said very easily in a decent quality environment. And I know, you know, you have your, your daughter's over there. She's been so good this whole time. And I really appreciate it. I don't know where she's at. She may be tuckered out at this point, just clonked. <laughs> um, so, but, uh, so if anyone heard anything, just so you know, that's that. And my wife's upstairs. We're quarantined. What do you want? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but thank you so much for Catherine for coming on. And again, guys, this is Catherine Henry with Henry Law, and she's obviously done her homework. Um, so, anyway, uh, thank you guys for tuning in. My name as well. This is Catherine, and this has been the Church Split.